Kia and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by an educational grant from GSK. The content of this podcast was developed by the Goodfellow Unit and our expert speaker. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler and today I welcome Professor Nikki Turner back to the podcast. Today we are discussing meningococcal disease in young people, a New Zealand perspective. Nikki is an academic general practitioner and professor in the Department of General Practice and Primary Health Care at the University of Auckland. She is medical director of the Immunisation Advisory Centre, IMAC, at the University of Auckland, and she is a GP in Wellington. Kia ora, Nikki, and welcome. Kia ora, Louise. Thank you. So today we're discussing meningococcal disease in young people, those under the age of 18. Meningococcal disease is caused by the bacterium Neisseria meningitis. Humans are the only host for this bacteria. How many young people are affected by meningococcal disease each year in New Zealand, Nikki? And in what ways are they affected? Yes, this is a pretty rare disease, but it's a very important disease. It's very scary for all of us, particularly because the onset is often very sudden and dramatic. The rates of disease do vary quite a lot from year to year. In 2019, we had about 130 cases reported. But interestingly, since the lockdown and COVID, there has been a significant drop-off. And in 2021, we only had 44 cases, which is the lowest rate we've seen for years. This is most likely related to the fact that um, we were in lockdown, we had social distancing, and we had our borders closed. Interestingly, internationally, everywhere have also seen a drop-off in disease. Um, but don't hold your breath. We're not expecting that to last. Uh, we will expect to see cases rise again as the world starts to move and people start to move around. There is a seasonal pattern, so it is most commonly seen in spring. And I think the important message for us about children is that more than 80% of cases of meningococcal occur in those aged 0 to 19, so children and adolescents. And within this age group, about half of those will occur in children under five. And in particular, the highest rates are in infants under one year of age. So highest rates under a year of age, next most common up to five. And then there's another group of midlife adolescents aged 15 to 20. So those are the critical age groups. Now, in terms of the types of disease, meningococcal has got about 12 different serogroups. But we've got to focus on five important ones. So the important ones are A, B, C, W, and Y. There is also another one coming through called X. But at this stage, we're focused on these five different serotypes. Now, they all vary around the world, interestingly. And people will know about the African meningitis belt, which traditionally was meningococcal A. And they had a huge predominance of meningococcal A prior to vaccination there. Now that they're vaccinated, A's become very rare. And they're now seeing a resurgence of W. Now, in New Zealand, the pattern really is sitting around 50% B, 50% A, C, Y, and W. Now, traditionally, we saw a lot more C. But in the last few years, we're seeing W emerging as a problem closely behind Y. So that's quite a worry for us because W is actually a nasty disease. It has a higher case fatality rate. It can present in even more atypical ways. And even though it's still predominant in young people, um, you can actually see it relatively more across all ages. So W is the one to watch out for. So how does one get meningococcal disease? Yeah, this is really interesting. So this is a bacterium that is carried 
in the nasopharynx. Now, traditionally, it's carried in the nasopharynx of adolescents, and really up to about 15% of adolescents walk around carrying meningococcal in the nasopharynx. So it's really why do so many carry it when only really does it become invasive? So you've touched on populations, but which populations are greatest at risk? Right. So we know that carriage is highest in adolescents, but the risk of invasive disease is highest in children under five, as we've mentioned, and then second highest in adolescents. Now, within that, there's always the subgroups at higher risk, and in particularly, as we often see with infectious diseases, Māori and Pacifica children are at highest risk. And then, of course, there's the risk factors that it makes it more likely to get invasive pneumococcal disease. So while we don't really understand fully why somebody gets invasive disease, whereas someone else can just carry it in the nasopharynx, there are important risk factors that make it more likely. And these include exposure to cigarette smoke, binge drinking, or having another respiratory infection, such as influenza. It seems to make more likely to become invasive. Living in close proximity with others, this is what you see in crowded households. So this is really an issue with poverty and and New Zealand overcrowding. Um, Boarding schools, university halls of residence, or long-term institutional care. Or if you're in a household or another close contact of somebody who's carrying the bacteria, then you're more likely to get it yourself. Um, So that's people who have been intimate or infants or children attending an early childcare centre. You can see why adolescents, when they hang out together in close proximity with all sorts of interesting adolescent approaches to life, are more likely to spread it between each other. Having a medical condition, obviously, that puts you at higher risk of invasive disease. So, you know, we can think of people with severe problems with your immune system, such as splenectomized or people who are taking DMARDs or other disease-modifying agents. Those are the obvious ones to consider as well. So, Nikki, tell us about the symptoms. And specifically, do the symptoms vary in different age groups? Do children versus adolescents, do they present differently? Yes, it can present differently. So it can present anything along the spectrum from septicemia to meningitis. And it doesn't always present with classic meningitis symptoms, particularly for young infant. So it can often appear in in the spectrum of features just from persistent fever with or without a rash, sleepiness, myalgia irritability in young infants, or in in young adults, you can just present with confusion and irrational behavior. Many of us will be aware it can get mixed up with flu-like illnesses. So that's why we need a high alert to it. There is a rash that we're always looking out for, a classic non-blanching rash, but this is often not present or it could appear quite late in the illness. So don't get fooled if there's an absence of a rash. And because it's so easily confused with flu and other non-specific viral illnesses, particularly in infants and young children, we have to have a very high index of suspicion. So generally, a very unwell child, however they're very unwell, think very hard, could this potentially be meningococcal? The other problem, as I mentioned, particularly with W, is that they can occur with atypical presentations. You can see pneumonia, they can present with septic arthritis, myocarditis, or diarrhea. So again, high index of suspicion can be difficult to pick up. Thinking about treatment now, Nikki, what is the treatment? Yeah, so the challenge for us in general practice is this is an illness that can appear very fast and go very fast to severe. So we need to have a high level of use antibiotics as quick as possible, a low threshold for it. If you've got any suspicion at all that you've got a person in front of you with meningococcal, do not wait for the diagnosis. Go ahead and give antibiotics. We lose nothing 
by overusing antibiotics in this case, we would lose a great deal by underusing them. If at all possible, if you do have a meningococcal case and you've got the opportunity, do try and take some blood in a purple top EDTA tube if you can manage three to five mils before you give the antibiotic. That'll just help at the hospital end to make the diagnosis. But, you know, if it's not easy to do, don't delay antibiotics. What antibiotics should we use in general? The current advice is keftriaxone and about 50 milligrams per kilo. You can give it IV or IM if you can't get IV access. Benzyl penicillin is a reasonable alternative. If there is a documented history of penicillin anaphylaxis, the general advice is to admit not give antibiotics. Now, to be quite honest, anaphylaxis to penicillin is unusual. And don't get distracted by everybody who says they've got a variation of allergy. It would only be if it was anaphylaxis. And how serious is meningococcal disease and what are the outcomes? Right. Well, this is why we're all very fearful of it, because even though it's a rare disease, it is very serious. It is said to be fatal in about half of patients who are untreated. Now, even with treatment, the CDC data would suggest around one to two people die. And the WHO data suggests one in five of survivors have sequelae. And the sequelae are pretty horrible. Hearing loss, seizures, cognitive problems, um, motor deficits, visual impairments, loss of limbs. I think many of us have visual memories of the meningococcal B epidemic in New Zealand and Charlotte Perry Bisman, that very brave girl who lost all four limbs and is living an amazing life now, but what a challenging life. So we have to be aware of how important it is. Once again, W tends to have a higher case fatality rate than the other serogroups. So thinking about preventing meningococcal disease, is there anything we can do? Yes, definitely. Firstly, vaccination programs absolutely work. As I mentioned about the meningitis belt across Africa, they have almost fully eradicated serogroup A. The UK who started vaccination programs first with C have dramatically reduced the incidence of C. Um, the new vaccination with B type is having a big impact on B. Vaccination programs work. The next thing that works is looking at your housing, crowded households, housing conditions, um, famine nutrition, supporting you know, problems of poverty and poor New Zealand housing would make a difference. Then the third thing is management of household contact. So when you do have meningococcal in a house, treat, manage, think about household contacts who are at high risk also. So Nikki, you've mentioned vaccination, so I wonder if we can touch on this for a moment. What vaccinations are available in New Zealand and what are they effective against? Right, so there are two important different groups of vaccination, one against B type and the other against basically all the others. And really, since 50% of our disease is B and 50% is the other types, whenever you think of meningococcal vaccine, you need to think a vaccine for B and a vaccine for the other four. Now, there's two different approaches to vaccination program. The ideal approach would be to eradicate it from the nasopharynx. That would require a universal program. The second type is individual protection, uh, which is where you've given individual a vaccine to offer them protection. Now, the challenge around meningococcal disease is to protect yourself against meningococcal disease, you need high circulating antibodies. So as soon as your antibody levels start dropping off, even if you've got T-cell memory, it's not fast enough to prevent disease. So meningococcal vaccines do generate really high levels of antibody, but they're not lifelong. They're going to drop over three to five years. So the other important message about meningococcal disease, if you don't take 
a universal program herd immunity approach, then you need to repeatedly vaccinate to protect an individual. So those are two different strategies. Now, in the New Zealand situation, we do not currently have a universal vaccination program. Therefore, our vaccination program is very much about individual protection or about close family contacts. If New Zealand did have a universal vaccination program, then you could take a strategy where you vaccinated and usually it's taken as a single mass campaign for children and adolescents to eradicate the bacteria from the nasopharynx. And once you've got good control across the community, then you just need to vaccinate your new infants and toddlers coming through into the program. That's the ideal strategy. And that's a strategy that's done in many countries. New Zealand as yet has not funded meningococcal disease on their national program. So we have a highly targeted vaccination program at the moment. So Nikki, you've mentioned two vaccinations that are available in New Zealand. I wonder how effective each vaccination is or combined together. Yes, so firstly, the vaccination, they're called conjugate vaccinations and they're against A, C, Y and W. Now, these vaccines are a traditional polysaccharide coat and then you conjugate them. And the the purpose of the conjugate is to drive the immune response much more effectively than just a traditional polysaccharide coat. So these vaccines, unlike the traditional vaccines, are highly effective for young infants. And they're said to be somewhere around 80, if not 80 to 100% effective in infants and somewhere around 60 to 100% effective in um, children and young adults. Now, remembering, as we said before, antibody levels do drop off over the time. So they are effective, but the effectiveness tends to wane in about three to five years. Their safety profile is excellent and they've been used extensively. The other group of vaccines is Bexero, the B type. Now, for complex reasons, type B was unable to be put into a conjugate vaccine, which is disappointing. So we've had to design a specific B-type vaccine. Now, New Zealand historically did have an outbreak of a seropecific B way back in the 1990s. And there was a specific vaccine designed for that called MEN-B. It was used between 2004 and 2006. However, as the epidemic waned, we stopped using that. Anybody who received that vaccine will not have any immunity now. However, the particular type that went into that vaccine, called an outer membrane protein, has been combined with three other components into a B vaccine called Bexero. It was first licensed in 2013, so it's quite a recent vaccine, first used in the UK, and now it's used in England and Australia and about 40 other countries. Um, The effectiveness of this vaccine is looking very good, somewhere between 60 to 100% effective, depending on the B types in the country. The duration of protection is unknown, but at this stage, we again would expect it to last a few years, but not lifelong. So thinking about young people and targeting vaccination, what groups should we be targeting? So realising New Zealand does not have a universal programme, we do have some high-risk groups that are funded by the national programme. And that's important, firstly, to recognise who are the high-risk funded groups. Firstly, there's specific medical conditions, people who have got much higher risk of invasive meningococcal disease than anyone else. Now, it's hard to remember this full list. 
So my advice to all of us is if you've got a young person or a child with a medical condition, think, could this person be at risk of meningococcal disease? Often the same group as pneumococcal, encapsulated bacteria. So just think, have I got children who could be at high risk? For anyone who's got the ability to go and search through their PMS for these high-risk conditions, that would be the ideal answer, because I think many of us are missing these children. The list includes splenectomized, important immune conditions like HIV and complement deficiencies, immunosuppressed organ transplants, bone marrow transplants, people with prior meningococcal disease from any group, and close contacts. Now, it's hard to remember the whole group. So remember, think meningococcal disease. You can think it alongside pneumococcal. Who's at higher risk? Who could be subsidized? Then look in the immunization handbook or online on the pharmaceutical schedule to see if they're eligible for the high-risk funded program. The second important group that are high risk is those who are living in close living quarters with other people. And so these are adolescents and young adults aged between 30 to 25 who are living or are likely to be living in a boarding school hostel, a university hall residence, a military barracks or a prison. So just think of adolescents, young adults in close contact. They're also funded. Remembering they're funded for the quadrivalent, the four types, plus the B. So they need both types of vaccines. So who would we recommend vaccines to? Those are the highest risk groups. And then remember, you need both a quadrivalent and a B. Now, in terms of the types of vaccines, it does get a little confusing. So the B is easy. The only vaccine available on the public and on the private market is Vexero. The quadrivalent, the public funded one currently, is called Manactra. Now, because Manactra is only licensed from nine months, if you've got publicly funded under nine months, you have to use the monovalent C, which is called NiceVac. Now, if you're offering it on the private market or people have the means, you'd be better off from the age of six weeks using the other quadrivalent called Nemenrix. Nemenrix is probably a slightly better quadrivalent. You need less doses for toddlers and it has a really good response. So if you're buying on the private market, you can choose Nemenrix or Manactra. They're both effective. I would have a preference for Nemenrix for both of those reasons. So just remember, you've got different options for the quadrivalent conjugates. With the B, you've only got one option. So Nikki, what I'm hearing is if we're offering vaccination, we should consider offering both. So I'm wondering then how we give them. Do we need to space them? How many doses? What should we be doing? Yeah, so the general rule of thumb is you can give them together. And generally... Infancy needs a primary course of two, then you need a booster dose in toddlers, or if you're using Manactra, it's two. But the general rule would be two for infancy, and then a booster dose for the quadrivalence. And in older children and adolescents, a single dose of the quadrivalent. Big zero is a two-dose course. So you have your infancy course, and then you'll need two doses. That's the general rule. The easiest thing is to go and look up how to deliver it. You can deliver them both together. There is one important issue that I think we need to talk about with Bexero, that the difference in Bexero, unlike any other vaccine, is we recommend using prophylactic paracetamol with it. Now, this is a different rule from any other vaccine. So Bexero is a highly effective vaccine, but it is also very reactogenic. 
Now, when it's reactogenic in young children, you get a high rate of fever. And when you get a high lot of fever, you end up seeing a lot of children in ED. A lot of children get worked up unnecessarily for sepsis with lumbar punches and full infection screens, and it's not useful. So the recommendation, particularly to reduce the incidence of fever, is to use prophylactic paracetamol, which you start just before. You use it with every dose of Bexero, and you give it every six hours, and you give three doses from giving the Bexero and another two doses, and you start in half an hour before vaccination. This is really to prevent the fever. This is only pertinent to Bexero. It doesn't apply to any other vaccines on the national schedule. And Nikki, just to clarify, that's with all age groups, not just infants? It's particularly with infants. Um, It's not necessarily in children over two years of age, and it's really about the control of the fever. For any other age group, like with any other vaccine, you can use it as analgesia if people are uncomfortable. But the issue of high fever is really particularly pertinent to children under two. Thank you for clarifying that. So then if someone is vaccinated and gets meningococcal disease, how is the trajectory of the disease changed by being vaccinated? So it depends on how recently you were given the vaccine and whether the vaccine matches the serotype that's prevalent. So if you've got recent vaccination and it matches the serotype, then it's highly likely to prevent or significantly reduce the severity of the disease. However, if your vaccination was many years earlier, your sterilizing antibody levels have dropped, you're less likely to have protection. So really, if you were a high-risk child or a family that wanted a child to have regular protection, you're actually going to need to revaccinate every three to five years. So this is the challenge when we're using it outside of a widespread national program is that high-risk children or people who would like protection for their children need to repeatedly vaccinate. So just picking up on that comment, Nikki, so you've mentioned the young children. The children I often see are those who are going off to boarding school. So they're 13, 14, 15. We offer them the two doses, but then they'll go off to university. So they should be having another dose of each vaccination before they hit the university hostels as well, I'm hearing. Yeah, that is correct. You can't guarantee your protection after five years. And with Bexero, we don't yet know how long the protection lasts. So the challenge for us from an equity point of view is with the private market vaccine, who should we be actively offering it to? This is a really hard question. So I think at this stage, remembering that those at highest risk are under one, particularly under five. So my first group that I'd be offering it to would be the young children particularly those in poor living conditions, Māori and Pacific. Of course, the conundrum is that this is not a cheap vaccine. The vaccines are $80 to $90 a dose to the provider. So there's a real equity problem there. So the first group are the under fives. Then I think you'll find in mid-childhood, the incidence of meningococcal disease is slightly lower. And then you get that second peak in mid-adolescent years, early adult. And that's where you probably would like to offer the vaccines again. So those are the two important age groups to offer. My ideal dream would be we'd have a universal program where we'd have less organisms in the nasopharynx so that there would be less people at risk overall. That is the ideal answer. In the meantime, we had quite a a difficult, unsatisfactory problem where we only have private market vaccines for the majority of our children. It's been wonderful talking to you, Nikki. Thank you so much. And to conclude our podcast today, just some take-home messages, please, for our listeners. Yeah, sure. So as we're all very aware, meningococcal disease is very rare. 
but important disease. It can come on suddenly and it can masquerade as other illnesses and can be devastating if we don't move fast and treat fast. It's most commonly seen in infancy, young children, adolescents or young adults. And it's seen more commonly in Pacific and Māori children and those living in poor housing conditions. Treat early on on suspicion with antibiotics. Do not delay. The bacterium itself is much more commonly carried in the nasopharynx, particularly of adolescents and young adults, and it only occasionally becomes invasive. So the risk of invasive disease is increased with certain medical conditions, smoking, binge drinking in crowded housing conditions. So those are the people to look out for at higher risk. New Zealand does not have a universal vaccination program. We only have a program targeted to high risk medical conditions and some adolescents, young adults in close living conditions. We have two groups of vaccines. We have the conjugates, quadrivalent against A, C, Y, and W, and then we have the recombinant group B. Both are needed to offer the best protection for our children. A universal program would be the best way to protect our children that would reduce carriage in the nasopharynx. In the absence of that, we only have a highly targeted national program and private market vaccines. This is creating significant equity barriers to those who are unaware of the issue or cannot afford it, and then often those who are at higher risk. A big challenge for all of us. Absolutely, it is. Well, thank you for your time today, Nikki. It's been a pleasure talking to you. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points, please log them, and you'll find a list of resources found at our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for listening.